This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. So I'm doing something very unique in the sense that last week I gave a message called The Plot Twist, and it was very significant, and I put it into one of my series called The Rise of the Shadow Nation, which has been a very, very powerful uh, series, and yet I feel like, I've never done this before, I took it out of that series, and I'm going to stick it into a new series and make it the first one of uh, a new series called The Rescue of a Nation, and it's the idea of how God can take a nation in the throes of darkness and evil and wrest it out of it, rescue it from it. Because I think for many of us, we're in a process of evaluating these things and seeing what does the word say on this. And last week I was showing the plot line throughout history, it's the same plot line that we, we continue to see, which it looks like evil comes in and has the upper hand and puts uh, the righteous back on their haunches and then suddenly evil gets crushed and the righteous win, but how did that happen? And it's always a supernatural thing where God gets the credit, you know, a la Gideon, uh, Esther, uh, David and Goliath, uh, the Red Sea. The whole Bible is full of this story of the righteous ones backed up and it changes the course of nations. And so what we see in the Bible is a preparatory uh, to, for our souls to begin to recognize the God we serve. We have had it easy here in the United States, and I wouldn't necessarily say that that has been a benefit to us at all times. It is, and it can be, I believe, and I believe that having a government that pre- preserves righteousness is a right thing, and it should be that way, and yet we've all noticed, and we could all attest to the fact that a righteous government doesn't necessarily make a people that lives outwardly and fully for the glory of Jesus Christ. It gives the opportunity for it, but oftentimes the ease baits us into a pacifism and a uh, submissiveness to the entire idea of comfort is king. And so I think for all of us, there's a stirring in us. If I could sort of create a language for us as the body of Christ, it's like, God, am I prepared for difficulty? Am I prepared if darkness were to overtake this uh, country? Would I be ready to stand? And I think part of that has to do with what we believe. We need to know what the word of God teaches and what he prepares us for. God doesn't spare us from discomfort. He doesn't spare us from evil empires. In fact, Basically, every Christian you've probably ever esteemed throughout the ages lived in a time of great darkness, which is why you esteem them, is they stood as a bright light in the midst of that darkness. And so it's not the fact that darkness is at work that should be our focus, but okay, what does God do and what does he desire to do in and through someone who says, God, here I am. But what if all of us say, God, here I am. And so as we see in that Second Chronicles passage that has probably been repeated maybe more than most passages in the past few months here in America, if my people that are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and they will turn from their wicked ways, then. You see, there's an if-then going on there, guys. 
and there's an if-then all throughout Scripture. If you humble yourself and you repent and believe, what happens? You're saved. And so we see that in the New Testament. It's, it's a parallel. It's on the individual life. At the same time, it's on the corporate. You see, what is true for individual souls is also true for nations. It's a fascinating thing. What is true for nations is true for the individual soul. Humility, a humbling before God, an acknowledgement of sin, a cleansing and a washing of this vehicle to say, God, what do you desire for it? And when that happens, this individual life is healed. But when we as the people of God gather together and do the same, it triggers a movement of grace in a culture. Praise God. That's why we pray for revival, right? We're not praying for darkness to come in because, well, then we would obviously be sharper as the church if we just had a lot more darkness in this world. A lot of us struggle to know how to pray in this because we recognize that persecuted Christians oftentimes are sharper Christians. So it's like, God, am I praying for that? How do I do this? What do I pray right now? And so this message is called the counterpunch. And there's this idea that I want to bring out of Scripture to show how at times God will allow a weakening of his people. And as a result, what that will do is it will bait in the enemy into a position of overplaying his agenda and expose him. And then God will, in a sense, create a pocket. I was going to use a term for my World War II series, the Fela's pocket, but you'd really have to have followed my World War II series to understand it, where literally Hitler is going to try and break through a thin line of patent. And it's almost like you see the Americans going, you want to try that? You want to try that? And so he does, and he gets surrounded, and it's like eight divisions are going to be completely devastated of Hitler's army. I mean, it's just a massive victory, but it is playing upon weakness, it's an apparent weakness that is, in a sense, going to bait in the enemy, and for a while, it's going to look like a disaster for the Americans, and yet it's going to turn. And I think for all of us, we're saying, God, could there be a plot turn here? <laughs> could there be a shift? And I'm just here to tell you that the Word of God is going to lay out a pattern of a storyline, and I would like to just lift it up before us, because there is a rescue pattern for individual lives and nations. The counterpunch. Psalm 27, 10 through 24. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. So, an interesting statement. When my father and mother forsake me, obviously that's not the most normal thing to have happen. However, we live in a culture where in a sense we feel a little forsaken, which is like, hey, is anyone looking out for what I would represent? Have you ever felt like your voice is being marginalized? It's like, uh, excuse me, there's a promise. Then the Lord will take care of me. You see, actually, one of the principles that you have is God is a father of the fatherless. And so, therefore, when you lose that protection, you could say even of government, right, of that which is supposed to care for you in a certain way, if that turns against you, forsakes you, you do realize that the Lord will take care of you, right? Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. 
That's an interesting statement too. In other words, he would have lost heart unless he believed that it was possible to see the goodness of the Lord in this land, not just in the heavenly territory, but in this land, the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Pretty good message for us right now, guys. So uh, I don't study boxing very much. When I was young, I used to watch boxing. There was some point in time along the way as I was developing as a Christian that I recognized this is somewhat of a violent sport. <laughs> and I, I, I moved away from boxing. But, uh, so I've never really followed this uh, mixed martial arts thing. It's, it's never really been a fascination to me. But for whatever reason, I've had this term, the counterpunch, in my mind, and so I decided to study a counterpunch, and so I had to go to some experts you know, in mixed martial arts and get some, some more understanding. So that's where this is coming from. If you're just starting to take up the sports, this is obviously talking to someone who's like, hey, I'd like to know how to do this. If you're just starting to take up the sport of boxing, then you have probably heard of its basic punches as well as its advanced tactics. You know your jabs, your crosses, your uppercuts, and your hooks. But when you reach the advanced stages of boxing training, the focus begins to shift from offense to defense, and a large part of defense in boxing is counterpunching. So the counterpunch is for the mature boxer. The boxer who is at an extremely advanced level, he understands how to do this. And it's actually interesting because, I mean, I don't think like a boxer. I wasn't a boxer. I've never been. But, but just getting into this, it's interesting because my whole point that I've seen in Scripture is found in this illustration. It's just amazing. So here I have this term in my head and I decide to look into it. It's like, well, that's exactly it right there. So I'm sorry to say that if you ask me where I sourced this, it was Wikipedia. I'm really, I, sorry guys. Uh, but I mean, how am I gonna learn about a counterpunch, right? A counterpunch is a boxing punch that immediately follows an attack launched by an opponent. It exploits the opening created in an opponent's guard. Counterpunchers are tactical defensive fighters who rely on opponents' mistakes in order to gain an attacking advantage to get scorecards or the chance of a knockout. And so as a result, this boxer that is a defensive boxer, oftentimes if you're a fan of that defensive boxer, you're stressed out the whole time because the other guy is punching away and this defensive boxer is avoiding it. Meanwhile, he's wearing out the guy who's swinging all the punches and the defensive boxer is watching everything about it. He's studying. He's getting a PhD on all the guy's weaknesses and tendencies. And so as a result, he's going to spend all his time wearing down this guy, exposing all of his movements, and then just at the right time, kaboom. And those are the greatest boxers. The greatest boxers are not the, 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 the ones that just throw a million punches. They're the ones that know how to throw one that knocks them out. And yet it's rather stressful to follow them. The three main type of counterpunch techniques, some of you are thinking, what did I get myself into today? <laughs> so timing the punch, we're all gonna be great boxers at the end of this message. I don't have much more on boxing, so don't worry. The ti timing the punch, so it's wait for it, wait for it, and then boom. And so you're waiting because there's a rhythm to boxing, it's called the sweet science. And so there's this whole movement. It's almost like a poetry. And so you're re recognizing the movements of your opponent. And so you're waiting for the perfect time. You don't want to expose that you're thinking. You're hatching plans and you're going to go right after that one spot when he does that one move. And so as a result, it's called timing the punch. Bait and switch. I'm very fascinated with this one. 
Oh, I'm vulnerable. Please don't hit me right here. Please, please don't swing right now. Gotcha. And so what this is, it's the one thing where the, the boxer sort of has his, his glove down here and he, he doesn't seem to be defending. He's trying to bait the guy in. And so he's moving back and he's sort of like, you, you wouldn't hit me here, would you? You don't want to hit me here. No, I mean, I'm wide open right here. And then the guy swings and, and he gets him. That's called a bait and switch. And then catch and counter. Huh? What do I have here? The guy swings, you sort of catch his glove, and then, huh, well, what do I have? So that's another one, okay? Technically, I don't know if I want any of us practicing this after the service. <laughs> However, as you'll know, what I am interested when I study war is I'm interested in the spiritual way to apply it. I'm not interested in going off to war personally, but I am in a war. I'm in a war and I have battles all the time that I am engaged in, and I want to know how to effectively engage in that battle. I do not want to be passive in my soul. I want to be aggressive towards that enemy with the authority, with the weapons that I have in Jesus Christ. So boxing, though I'm not interested in getting to a ring and, and boxing with someone, in a strange way we have this parallel, even with Paul, describing this boxing, this sweet science that we're in with the enemy. See, some of you are looking at my movements, you're like, he's pretty good. He'd be actually a really good boxer. I don't know, maybe I should get into it, huh? So we have these big four, and in the past I've described them as the big three, but now we've sort of added one this week uh, in our discussions here at Ellerslie. Lawlessness, murder, fear, and deception. So the enemy that we are fighting has very specific movements, and what we wanna do is take him out. We have been given the authority. What we need to remember as the saints of God is that we are not fighting an enemy that is invulnerable. Oh, he's vulnerable. He's actually defeated. And what we need to do is reckon or understand that we have a position to win in this battle. Over the weekend, I used an illustration of being a lamb against a wolf pack. And if you're a little sheep, you're fluffy and you're cute, yeah. However, you're a goner if you're up against a wolf pack. The secret to the sheep is not to study his own strength and not to study the strength of the evil one, but to study the shepherd. He needs to remember his great strength isn't found in his own fluff. His strength is found in the strength of his shepherd. And so as a result, he sort of gets cozy right in the shadow of his shepherd, nuzzles up against his ankle and says, I'm staying here. And if that sheep learns to stay in that shadow, he doesn't fear what the wolf pack can do. What he knows is that his shepherd has defeated him. His shepherd is greater. And right now, it's a very, very important tactic that we pull. We're gonna stand against what the enemy is doing, and even at times it may look like it is winning, that it is gaining ground. You need to remember as a sheep the end of the story. You need to remember that there will be a turning of the tide. Of course, it can never happen fast enough. And yet, we need to remember every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Psalm 11.3. This is a scripture that I've been meditating upon throughout the week. And I'm going to read it to you, but I'm yet to recognize a lot of us have this scripture, but we don't have the context for it, which is going to be very, very important. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What it's doing is it's, it's bringing up something that I think many of us are feeling right now. If the foundations of a godly government evaporate, 
what actually can we do as the righteous? I mean, can we gather and, and have services anymore? Can we actually go witnessing? I mean, things, I mean, we weren't doing certain things before, but now we're like concerned that we won't be able to do it. And what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? I'm a big fan of foundations. And so I understand the logic here. If the foundations of this country are destroyed, what could the righteous do? So I, I want to acquaint you with this scripture at another level because I think it's important. It stood out to me quite dramatically this week because it's my exact thought pattern. This is exactly what's going on in my head. Okay, Lord, what can I do if this happens? If this happens, what's my role as a pastor? What's my role as a husband? What's my role as a father? What am I supposed to do as the leader of this organization? What can the righteous do if I lose everything that has allowed me to do this up to this point? It's a good question. So Psalm 11, we'll just go through it. It's not that long. In the Lord, I put my trust. Uh, by the way, it's gonna be a key line. You might wanna highlight that in your mind. In the Lord, I put my trust. So this is David, and he's making a statement in the very beginning. Guys, by the way, if you're wondering, in the Lord, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul? And you're, you're thinking, who's he talking to? He just sort of makes this statement. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? So this is actually a question. How can you say to my soul that I should flee as a bird to a mountain? I put my trust in the Lord. For look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Boom, there it is, okay. Next line. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. We just read through a whole psalm right there. Okay, now, to understand this psalm, we sort of need to understand that there's voices in the psalm. We're going back and forth between a few different voices, and it's actually helpful. It's like reading Song of Solomon and not knowing who's talking. It can get very confusing and fast. So Psalm 11, I'm gonna put that top line as the statement that David is making to start this out. It's like, look, I, I hear what's being said to me, which is in the italics, okay? What you see on the screen in the italics is that which is being said to David to disquiet and undermine his trust, and so as a result, we need to recognize what this is. It is a statement to say, you know what? If this happens, you don't have any recourse. If this happens, you're a goner. If this happens, woe is you. And so David is going to start out with a premise, in the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, and I put a colon there. The colon isn't in the uh, actual translation. It's a comma. However, a colon just to say, this is what is being stated to David's soul. Hey, you think you can get away with saying this to my soul? And so now I'm gonna say what is being said to his soul. Flee as a bird to your mountain, David. For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string and that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. So you're all upright, David. Well, guess what? There's an arrow aimed right at you. 
And by the way, the foundations are being destroyed. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, so if you have this same thought going through your head, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, what's interesting is the men in here, we, we watched Insanity of God, the, the film at The Insanity of God last night, and what you see is Nick Ripkin going into places where the foundations are destroyed. And so the question is, what can the righteous do? And that movie sort of answers it, sort of steals the thunder of my entire message, which is ironic, isn't it? I mean, wow! Yeah, there is something the righteous can do even when the foundations are destroyed, and that's what is critical in this, because look at David's response. The Lord is in his holy temple. He has not changed his position. He is seated at the right hand of the Most High. This is how we as Christians even reason. He's reasoning this way in the Old Testament. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven, not down here. His throne is in heaven. He's over all of this. His eyes behold. If you think he doesn't see this, his eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the ones who love violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That is the question that is reverberating, I think, in our souls. If we were to lose the integrity of government here in America, what is the church gonna do? And so, this is key. We actually need to have an answer to that. Instead of just leaving it like, yeah, see, that's how important foundations are because if we lose them, boy, the righteous are sunk. Well, I'm not saying it's a good thing to lose a foundation of righteousness. I'm just here to tell you that our spiritual stability and state of strength does not hinge upon a government. In this earthly sense, it is pinned upon a heavenly government in another realm that will not be moved. So you choose which one you're going to fix to. It does not mean we forsake an earthly one. Don't get me wrong. It just means that if the foundations are shaken, we are not like birds fleeing to the mountains. I will put my trust in the Lord not in an earthly foundation of government. So what can the righteous do? Well, they can do what they did to become righteous in the first place. They can believe. See, there's actually an answer to this question. How did the righteous become the righteous? We're called the righteousness of God, not because we did righteousness, but because he did righteousness. And we believed in him and were clothed in his righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. It's one of the names of God. He is our righteousness. And so how did you become righteous in the first place? You believed. What did you believe? Did you just believe that everything was gonna turn out easy and, and fun and delightful? No, you believed that he is, that he is able, that he saves, that he is a constant, even when this world fogs him over and you can't quite see how it's all gonna work out, that you trust through it all that he is and he is able and he will do it. What he said he will do, he will do. If he promises, he'll come through on it. So that's one thing the righteous can do, guys. So Psalm 11, in the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain, Ludi, Hartman, Albertson, 
In other words, there's a statement that is being given to us. Flee as a bird to the mountain. Fret, forebode, get anxious. I put my trust in the Lord. But the wicked bend their bow, Ludi. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at you. If the foundations are destroyed, Ludi, what can the righteous do? The church has no recourse. The church has no hope, Ben. Do I have an answer for that in my soul? Do you have an answer in your soul? Oh no, there's an evil archer with arrows aimed at the upright. What can the righteous do? So let's just look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, and then verse 16 specifically to make a case for what we can do. Finally, my brethren, says Paul, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So now he's putting on the armor going through each element of the armor. Above all, taking the shield of faith which which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now remember, there's an evil archer that has arrows and they're aimed at the upright. What can the righteous do? Uh, They can hold up the shield of faith. You see, we have not been left orphans. Even if our mother and father forsake us, we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. What can the righteous do? They can do what they do best. Believe in the Lord. I will trust in the Lord, says David. We might as well start quoting that in our own soul. Psalm 11.3. I don't know if you guys have seen this scripture before, but if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, by the way, I'm a big fan of the foundations of this country. Big fan. Okay, I've spent a lot of time studying early American history, constitutional law. These are things that I cherish, and I think it's amazing. I think it's brilliant. I think it's extraordinary. However, my confidence does not rest in this form of government. This form of government will pass away, and it is an imperfect form. There is only one perfect form of government, and it is stationed on high, and my King Jesus leads that government. It rests upon his shoulders, And so my confidence is in that government, even if this one melts away. This, it shouldn't shake me if this one melts away, though I will not prosper it going away, I will not help it go away, I am not going to lose my soul's state of stability if it does. We're Christians, we're fixed to rock, and when winds and rains beat against our house, we're not going anywhere. So what can the righteous do? Here's something they can do. They can be strong in the Lord. They can be strong in the power of his might. They can put on the whole armor of God. They can stand against the wiles of the devil. And they can take up the shield of faith. What would the result of that be? Because, I mean, you hear those voices talking to David. Flee as a bird to the mountain. I mean, if you're a bird, you could understand why if an arrow is aimed at you, you, you you need to get out of there. However, what is the result of doing what Paul commissions us to do in Ephesians 6. I mean, you all know, but I'm just going to repeat it. I'm saying all the obvious statements today. And in so doing, they will repel every fiery arrow of the evil archer. Fact. Psalm 11.3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
So I'm going to give you an illustration that I give to our students when they come through. And I'm going to, I usually give it, oh, I don't know, 20 times in a five-week semester, just over and over and over again. There's three characters, fact, faith, and experience. And they're all called to do something impossible. I know when I tell the story, you're not going to think it's impossible. And that's, but it's walk the, the ridgepole of a barn, okay? And you're like, that's, that's not that hard. Well, this is a razor's edge, okay? And technically, by definition, it's impossible. You just need to trust me because that's important to the story. And so the first character gets up, and his name is Fact. And he gets out there. And remember, this is impossible. And he just starts walking it. You're like, what? I thought you said it was impossible. I know, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? You see, in Christianity, we don't use the word fact. That's not a normal term for us. We use the word truth. Because to us, even though they're very similar, it's that which is without exaggeration, that which is without lie. It's a person to us. And you don't call Jesus fact, he's truth. And Jesus is the one who is going to get up and actually pull off an impossible life. You see, this is the word of God. The word of God comes in multiple forms. The text, which is the scripture, the man, which is Jesus, and the action, the cross. You see, this is what we put our faith in. We put our faith in what the word says about that man and what that man is gonna do for us, and that we believe that what he did is sufficient to bring rescue to us. So that's where we stake our eternity. And so, fact gets up there and just walks the ridgepole. He does the impossible. Faith is the next character, and if faith sticks its gaze, its focus, its confidence on fact and follows fact. I know, it sounds strange that I told you it was impossible, but the first two characters begin to do the impossible. Faith will balance on that ridgepole and pull off the impossible if it fixes its gaze on the facts. However, life isn't that simple. And so there's a third character that's making a lot of noise back there. He's clamoring for attention, experience. You could also call him emotion. Okay, he has a lot to say. And there's a lot going on inside of this third character, clawing at the shirt sleeve of faith to say, you need to talk to me. You know, remember when this happened? Remember that one time you prayed and this happened? Remember this person, they had cancer and then you prayed for them and you were believing and then they died? You have all this stuff back here that is trying to cast doubt on the facts. Here, I'm gonna give you a rule of thumb for how to walk this ridgepole in your life because you're in the faith position. You need to choose what you're gonna focus on. Are you gonna focus on what God says or are you going to allow this cacophony behind you, this fireworks display of nonsense behind you to control you? Any one of you that tries to build your life following your experience and your emotion is going to lose balance and you're gonna fall off this ridgepole of the barn, you're gonna land in that pile of manure. Remember that one you've spent a good deal of your life in? Yeah, if you'd like to spend more time in that pile of manure, focus on your experience and your emotions. However, if you would like to learn how to walk out the impossible life, you need to ignore your experience and your emotions. I'm not saying they don't matter. I'm saying, for right now, ignore them. Fix your gaze on the fact and follow. When faith follows fact, it gains balance. So does God care about your experience and your emotions? Sure. But you know how he corrects them? Not by you focusing on them, by you ignoring them. And when you ignore them and you allow the facts to define you, then your experience and your emotion gains balance and will follow faith as it follows fact. You want your life to match up with those facts? You cannot be led by anything but what God says. When God says it, you take it as his word. He cannot lie, do you trust it? Fact, faith, and experience. 
So let's change out fact for God's word, and then we have faith, and then experience, the swirling vortex of nonsense. You've been listening to the swirling vortex of nonsense. There's a lot going on behind us here. In this culture right now, panic, run, scream, hide, sell everything. I mean, we've got a lot going on, guys, and it's a difficult time just to say, I'm gonna focus on Jesus. Just love you, Jesus. I've got noise back here. You wanna know how to navigate through this noise, fix your gaze on the truth. Fix your gaze on the facts. Fix your gaze on the word of God. That is the way we make it through the darkest hour. Isaiah 59, 19. I'm gonna give you some fact. I'm gonna just throw it out on the table. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. I'm gonna give another rendition of the scripture, same exact words, but I'm gonna make one word bigger, bolder, and underline it, just so you don't miss it. You see, this is called a promise. And as a result, it falls into the fact category. And so as a result, your job isn't to listen to all of this, but the enemy's coming in like a flood, and it doesn't feel good. I don't care how it feels. I wanna go back to the facts and lay them out on the table and say, do you believe them? When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. Fact, you believe it. Start walking in that direction. God's gonna answer this. God's gonna answer this. Mm -hmm. That's how we think. Reckoning the fact. Uh, James, do you wanna help me real quick? I got this microphone thing on my side. Okay, you didn't see that. You didn't see that. All right, so I need you to help me here. All right, James, you up to that? Okay, can you even see him in, the, in this? Okay, where does he need to be? Should he be up here? Okay, you come up here, bud. Thanks for being a helper. This is James Albertson. He gets to be a part of the message. So when I teach the students this idea of reckoning, uh, I usually stick a $10 bill or so back in the back. We have a $5 bill and it's going to be underneath my foot, okay? That's, I don't wanna to give too much away, but I'm gonna try and do a fast version of this just to sort of explain it. But imagine, James, that you had a problem in your life, okay? There's this big, uh, we usually call him two-ton Tony uh, here uh, at Ellerslie. He's a big six-foot-eight wide, six-foot-eight tall mob boss, okay? He's like the flesh, the old man. And he has controlled your life for years. And every time you go out those double doors, imagine there's no other doors in this chapel. Every time you go out those double doors, he beats you up. Oh, unless you can supply him $4, okay? Do you have any money in your pockets? I should have asked him that before he got up here. <laughs> you don't have any money in your pockets? No. Oh, no, because you have to have $4, otherwise he's gonna beat you up when you leave. What's gonna happen today? Oh, uh, Simon, could you hand me that? What's gonna happen today, you can hold this, if you leave this room without the $4? If he's gonna beat you up every time you leave and you can't, pay off that $4 debt, what's gonna happen? You're gonna get beat up. Oh no, hold it a little closer. You're gonna get beat up. Oh no, is that working by the way, Nathan? It is now? Okay, so say it one more time. I'm gonna get beat up. Oh no, see I had to say my part again too. <laughs> okay, so you have a problem, would you agree? So I mean this is a problem you've had throughout your life. We called it over the weekend the cyclical pattern of defeat. It's like, Every time you think you've, you've gotten it figured out, you get licked again. Two-ton Tony's just got the upper hand on you. Now imagine I come in, and I'm sort of a God figure in this story, okay? I'm not God, but I'm going to be a figure, a sort of a symbol of it. And I say, look, I've seen your need, and I've supplied you with $5, okay? It's underneath my foot, okay, my right foot. 
And so now I want to ask you a couple questions. Do you have in your own pockets that which you need to pass the two-ton Tony Tony test out those doors? No. You don't? Okay. Now I'm going to ask the same question. It's going to sound very similar, but I'm going to ask it a little differently. But do you have that which you need to pass the test? No. Okay, now let me remind you of something. I have a $5 bill for you underneath my right foot. So do you have in your own pockets that which you need to pass the 210 Tony test? But do you have that which you need to pass the test? Yeah. Well, it was, he's thinking about it, but yes. Okay, now, the reason James has it is not because he has it in crinkle, as I will oftentimes say. He can't put it between his fingers, but he has something. How do you have it? Do you want me to give you a help? You have it by faith. Okay? So say it. How do you have it? I have faith that you have it. So you have it by faith. Faith in what? And here's, I'm going to give you a little help. In my word. Okay? So let's start with the whole thing. Do you have in your own pockets, James, that which you need to pass the two-ton Tony test outside those doors? Because you need $4. Do you have $4 in your pocket? No. But do you have that which you need to pass the test? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, you do. That's strange, isn't it? How do you have it? Um, by faith. By faith? Faith in what? That you got the money for me. Faith in my word. Okay? So let's do it again. <laughs> do you have in your own pockets that which you need to pass the no. 210 Tony test? But do you have that which you need to pass yes. the test? How do you have that which you need to pass the test? Because I have faith. By faith in what? My word. My word. word. That's right. Okay, so now I want you guys to listen to this because what you're seeing is what Paul is going to refer to as reckoning. In Romans 6, he's going to command us to reckon ourselves dead indeed unto sin, alive unto God. Okay, so as we appropriate the truth of Scripture, we need to recognize we may not always have it between our fingers at the moment, but if God promises it, it's as good as us having it. So what would James do next? Would you just go out and face two-ton Tony right now with this good feeling all over you that you have what you need? What would you do? Ask you for it. Would you? I told you it's under my foot. You have to lift up my foot to get it. (laughs) So what would you do? Would you just go out and face 210 Tony with your empty pockets? No. A lot of us as Christians do. We hear the truth. We know it's there, but we don't take it to ourselves. So what would you do next? If I were you, I would go after the $5. That's just a hint. It's a loud, out loud hint there. So how would you do that? Try to lift your foot up. Yeah, I would do that. Okay, start moving. Okay, no, it's, my foot's way down there. You see, James is moving, and there's a trial or a test of faith in this process. In other words, we will move towards a truth, but not yet have it yet. But would it make any sense, just because he's taken two steps, or two shuffles in this case, should he give up on finding that $5? Has the promise changed? As you press forward, you may not immediately see the results, but it doesn't change the promise. If you reckon the truth, you have what you need to face two-ton Tony. But you must press until you obtain that promise in this natural realm. Okay, I won't stop you again. Just go after, go after that $5. See, he can't see it right now. He can't taste it. He can't feel it. But it's still there. Lean down. You're, you can see it. Oh, no. That's terrible. Okay, go get it, bud.
Good job, bud. That's yours. You can go sit down. Do you have in your own pockets that which you need to face the test of losing the foundations of a righteous government? No. No. But do you have that which you need to pass that test? How do you have that which you need to pass the test? You have it by faith in his word. Paul is going to summarize that as being, we have faith in Christ, because Christ is the word. And then he's going to summarize it even more by saying we have it in Christ. Because that's what faith in the word equates to. And so you have it in Christ. Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Fact. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Looks like there's a uh, quotation marks on the end, but not at the front end. Sorry about that, guys. We have some facts here, and I want to start by saying you need to reckon that yours. Just as James is going to consider himself $5 richer the moment he hears the word. But what is needed? He needs to trust my word. He needs to trust if I tell him that I have $5 beneath my feet that I am a trustworthy person. If we approach the word of God and know that God cannot lie, then when he speaks, we believe it. It's that simple. And as a result, though we don't yet have the crinkle of the $5 between our fingers, We are $5 richer. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, but there could be a season where it looks like it is. How are you going to handle that season? Are you willing to rise up and say, but God has promised. No weapon fashioned against us is going to prosper. Can you defend yourself against this satanic weapon with what is in your own pockets? No. But can you defend yourself against this weapon? Do you have what it takes? Yes. How? How do you have that? By faith in his word. Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? These are some pretty powerful statements in the word of God. Remember fact, faith, and experience? Where is your faith fixed? If God is for us, who can stand against us? Because there's a few people out there standing against us right now. And they seem to have all the power and all the sway. If God be for us, who can stand against us? Reckon it. Can you pull out a victory over this evil with what is in your own pockets? No. But can you pull out a victory over this evil? Yes. Yes. How would you do that? By faith in his word. You do it in Christ. We are not left without a hope. We are not left orphans without a mother and a father. The Lord will care for us. We are his children. We are the sheep of his pasture. We are his bride. Strange for a men's conference to mention that one. But he cares for us as a husband. 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. Faithful is he that calls you who also will do it. Can you overcome the devil with only the lint inside your pockets? No. But can you overcome the devil? Yes. How? By faith in his word. 
Romans 8, 38 through 39, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Extraordinary counterpunches. So we talked in the beginning about a counterpunch. This idea that in our mind, if God is all that he says he is, he should just blast the enemy and there should not even be any evidence of evil in this world. I mean, we have it all figured out in our mind as we oversimplify. Just like if you're really the best boxer, just knock them out in the first round. I mean, what are you doing? Why would you need to spend all these rounds stressing all of us watchers out as you avoid being struck and knocked down and knocked out the whole while? It's like, oh, come on, just hit him, hit him, hit him. Instead, he's studying him and he's wearing him down. He's exposing all of his offensive tactics. And then at just the perfect time, kaboom. Moses at the Red Sea, backed up, weak, most powerful military force in the world at the time is coming against them. They have no weapons. The Israelite, an entire nation, women, children included, have no weapons. Mountains on both sides and a sea to their back. God has them right where he wants them. It's a counterpunch, guys. God is going to study. He knows Pharaoh well. And he is going to bait Pharaoh into his own destruction. God wins. Jonathan between the rocks. The Philistines are cocky. They have the Israelites right where they want. And the Israelites have two sets of weapons. Saul has some and, and Jonathan has some. But Saul is fearful. Jonathan, alone with his armor bearer, is going to go up against the Philistines. You see, when God raises up his answer, the enemy overplays and has a cocksure attitude and is actually going to step right into God's plan, the earthquake in this situation. And God is going to root the Philistines. David at the brook. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. You see, Goliath is, is as cocky as you get, guys. And he keeps taking a step forward and he is mocking the children of Israel. David's going to look back and go, you've got to be kidding. God's going to send an errand boy delivering bread and cheese God has a counterpunch that is not just going to, I mean, talk about knocking your block off. That's exactly what's going to happen to Goliath. Elisha in the valley, backed up, two against an entire army of Syrians. And what Elisha sees is what we need to see. Those that are with us are greater than those that are with them. Do you see the mountains full of horses and chariots of fire all around? What do you see right now? You see, Elisha is, in one word, going to blind an entire army. Do you recognize that though we look weak, though we are backed up, we are the saints of God? This is when we get our growl on and we believe. If the foundations are destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Well, let's do what we do best. Let's be believers. Come on, we're not forsaking anything in a time like this. This is our hour to prove that everything that God has planted within us is real and genuine. This is our test of faith. Let's rise up and show that we have the stuff. Jehoshaphat surrounded, great story. Three armies surround this Judean king. He has nothing, he even acknowledges, but God gives him his word. Gives him his word that he will go before him and fight for him. Jehoshaphat, with the word of God, even though there's three armies surrounding him, sets his singers out in front and says, we, we got the victory. And he sends his singers at the front of the army to prove that it's not gonna be him that wins. God is gonna do it. Whoa, 
Let's set some singers out in front of us, guys. You do know that God's going to win. Has he not given us his word? So let's stand confident and set our singers out in front. It's time to start rejoicing, leaping for joy. You're like, do you see what's going on in the world? I see what is going to go on in the world. I know who wins this thing. I am not the one that's sucking my thumb in the fetal position. I'm a twice-born son of Jehovah, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And if God be for me, who can stand against me? God is my refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. So who in the world could I possibly fear? We are Christians. Let's function as them now. Hezekiah, the seizure on the Assyrian army, hasn't lost a battle in 100 years. 185,000 of them. And Judah has nothing. They're gonna die. And that's exactly what Hezekiah says. We have nothing for this battle. But we do have Jehovah. And Hezekiah realizes we have Jehovah. And once he comes to Jehovah, makes his petition to Jehovah and says, God, we got a problem here. But I'm gonna entreat you and say, this is a problem that's not too big for you. God is gonna wipe out 185,000 Assyrians overnight. No one really knows what happened to them. They just died. And this little weak force known as Judah is gonna come out triumphant, not because they were strong, but because the God they trusted was. The ultimate counterpunch Jesus at the cross. See, every good sermon has to end up there somehow, right? This is a counterpunch, guys. Jesus looks weak. He's studying his enemy. And he's like, whoa, I got a weakness here. I mean, they're gonna be in the Garden of Gethsemane tonight. You may want to arrest me. Oh, don't arrest me, don't arrest me. He's like, yeah, you don't wanna hit me right here, do you? You don't wanna fulfill all righteousness and do exactly what Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 said you were gonna do. You're gonna pierce my hands and the feet. You're going to you know, cast lots for my clothing. You're gonna, I'm gonna be numbered amongst the transgressors. You know, my side's gonna be pierced. Yeah, you don't wanna do all that. He baits them in. I mean, even his enemies are going to prove him the Messiah. He needed to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's his enemies that are gonna prove that. In fact, they're gonna use the money to buy the potter's field. It's like, whoa, that's amazing. Not a bone in his body will be broken, but he will be pierced. He's even dead when that happens. He's in control. You think the enemy has the upper hand at the cross? Think again. Who's winning? Who's losing? So even though the kingdom of heaven may look like it's backed up, the most advanced boxers are defensive boxers. They bait their opponent in, get them swinging, and then wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, kaboom. Don't don't hit me right here. No, no, don't pin me to the cross. No, no, no. Gotcha. This is exactly what's going to happen. Just as Haman is going to build a cross, a gallows, to hang Mordecai on, who's going to end up hanging on it? Haman. The devil is going to build a gallows, a cross, to hang the Son of God on. Who's going to hang on it? Sin, death, the old man is crucified. The serpent's head crushed. Okay, that's a good story, guys. It's a counterpunch. As I said last week, it's the plot twist. I love this line in 1 Corinthians. 
1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 8, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had known the trap that was set for them, their own bloodlust led them into it, their own sin led them into it. If they had known, they would have never done that. I mean, they crushed their own head. You gotta be kidding. I mean, they actually stepped in their own trap. The, the fowler laid out the trap and they stuck their own foot in it or lifted up hanging by their foot going, how did I get into this position? God wins. As the saints of God, I don't care what happens in the upcoming weeks. I do. But it doesn't matter what happens in these upcoming weeks when it comes to the state of our soul and the readiness to be saints of God, believers in this hour. Meanwhile, I do think we should pray about the direction of our country and not let it just go to the dogs. But if the dogs seem to be devouring our country, they will not devour us. We are believers in Jesus Christ, who is triumphant, who has crushed the head of the serpent, defeated death in the grave. He is seated at the right hand of majesty on high. And last time I checked, all things are underneath his feet. And the word of God has it that he's coming again. And that he will bring judgment to the nations. And that perfect justice will be served. And that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I say, let's check the word of God and not the news reports. It doesn't matter what it looks like in this world. Jesus is going to win. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. Lord, may we reckon ourselves richer today because we believe, we take it to our account. We reckon your word, your promise, ours. Lord Jesus, and just as we saw James recognize immediately that even if in his own pockets he didn't have the substance, he had it in Christ. He had it by faith in your word. And Lord Jesus, may we reckon ourselves wealthy today with the promises of God. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.